0: In 1862, a French author, Victor Hugo, wrote one of the best-loved novels of all time. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called Les Miserables. Les Miserables has been adapted into a number of movies and musicals over the years. Good chance you've seen at least one of them. And in this great novel, Victor Hugo tells the story of a Frenchman named Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was the son of a poor woodcutter, and he was orphaned at a young age, was raised by his older sister and her husband, uh, but he died suddenly uh, when Valjean was just 17 years old, and so the responsibility to care for his sister's seven kids fell on him. The only problem was at the age of 17, as a woodcutter, he didn't make much money, so he couldn't afford to feed those seven kids, let alone take care of their other needs. And so one night, Valjean, when the kids were crying out for food, he went out in the middle of the night, used his fist to break through the baker's window, and he stole a loaf of bread. Well, the next morning, the authorities came to his door. They saw that his fist was still bloody, bearing evidence of the fact that he had been the thief. And they put him in a hardened work camp with a prison sentence of five years for stealing a loaf of bread. But over the course of his sentence, he tried to escape five different times. Each time he was caught, and an extra three years was added to his sentence. So Valjean ended up being in a hardened prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread for his nieces and nephews. Well, he came out of prison a hardened man. He was mad at the world. He was angry. He was bitter. He was resentful. And he wore it on his sleeve. So every town he went to, no one wanted anything to do with him. Until he stumbled upon the home of the Catholic bishop, Bishop Muriel, who took him in, fed him dinner, and offered him a place to stay for the night. But after the bishop had gone and fallen asleep that night, Jean Valjean went down into that living room and kitchen and he collected all of the silver forks and knives that the bishop had. He put them in a bag and he snuck out, disappearing into the night. Well, the next morning, five soldiers brought him back to the bishop's house and told the bishop, we're arresting Valjean for stealing all of this silver from you. But the bishop's response was pretty remarkable. He turned to Valjean and said, what are you doing? I gave you the silver candlesticks as well. Why didn't you also take them? And then the bishop turned to those five soldiers and said, it was a mistake to arrest him. Let him go. The silver is his. I gave it to him. As the soldiers turned and walked away, Valjean whispered to the bishop, Is it true that I am free? Can I really go? And the bishop's response, some of the most beautiful words ever penned in a novel. He says, Yes, you may go, but before you go, take your candlesticks. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of hate and I give it to God. From that moment on, Jean Valjean was a transformed man. He chose that night to give his heart to God. And he spent the rest of his life loving and serving other people. And as he drew his final breaths of life years later, As he lay in his bed just a few feet from him were those two silver candlesticks with the candles glowing softly as he entered eternity. He had held on to those silver candlesticks that reminded him of the amazing grace and mercy of God. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if the prophet Jonah had had just as much mercy and grace for the people of Nineveh As this bishop had for Jean Valjean. Well, today we continue our verse by verse study through the book of Jonah. We're calling this series Jonah running to God. Today we are in chapter four. Remember what we've learned so far in these first three chapters. In chapter one, Jonah ran from God. He didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach the message God gave him. Uh, But almost drowning and getting swallowed by a huge fish has a way of changing a person's opinion, doesn't it? (laughs) And so in chapter two, Jonah's mind was changed and he decided, you know what? Uh, I don't want to be in this fish any longer. He chose to start running to God. That's what he did in chapter two. He came to his senses. He agreed to make good on the promise he had made to God years earlier to go wherever God wanted him to go and say whatever God wanted him to say and do whatever God called him to do. And as we saw last Sunday in chapter 3, after getting barfed up by the whale, Jonah in chapter 3 ran with God. He ran with God. He traveled 550 miles to Nineveh. He entered the city. He preached the message of judgment that God had told him to preach. And the people of Nineveh responded in a remarkable way. They believed God's Word. They put on sackcloth. They fasted. And they, they gave up their wickedness, their violence, their evil ways. And they even put on sackcloth and put it on their farm animals and didn't let their farm animals eat or drink anything for a day or two, hoping that those animals would somehow repent as well. It was truly remarkable. And as a result, Jonah chapter 3 ends with this amazing verse. It's there in verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that He had threatened. Now, If the story of Jonah had ended right here after chapter 3, it would have been a marvelous story. Some might call it a perfect story with such a happy ending. Think about it. A a man is called by God to reach a wicked city. The man goes AWOL and runs from God. Big storm, big waves, big fish, drama, drama, drama. This man comes to his senses. He decides he's going to go along with God's plan, and he does. He goes along with God's plan, and the wicked city is completely transformed. The wicked people are wicked no longer. The sinful people are sinning no longer. The people who rejected God are now accepting God. God. And there goes that mighty prophet off into the sunset as a hero. And everyone lives happily ever after. Isn't that how it's supposed to go? But that's not how it goes. That's how that story should have ended. But unfortunately, the story didn't end there at the end of chapter three. The story doesn't end with Jonah running off into the sunset, happy about having done the bidding of God. Instead, in chapter four, Jonah begins running against God. And it feels really anticlimactic. But that's okay, because God didn't give us the book of Jonah so we would have the making for a great screenplay. He didn't give us the book of Jonah so we would have a cool story with a happy ending. God gave us the book of Jonah to teach us some very important things about ourselves and about God that we really need to learn. So let's dive into chapter 4 of this great book of Jonah. Jonah 4, starting in verse 1. This is how God's Word reads in the NIV translation. And Jonah was greatly displeased. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Jonah, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun arose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned? about that great city. And God bless us as we study His Word together today. If the book of Jonah had wrapped up at the end of chapter 3, Jonah would be hailed as the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. Maybe the most successful prophet in the entire Bible. He walked into a big city, he preached one sermon, and over a 100,000 people turned from their sin And accept God at one level or another. That's nothing short of remarkable. It's amazing what happens on the heels of Jonah's prophetic preaching. Jonah should have been thrilled by the Ninevites' response to his preaching. After all, one of the most wicked cities on earth had just made an about face from their wickedness. But Jonah wasn't thrilled. Jonah should have been in awe of the mercy and grace of God, but he wasn't. He definitely wasn't singing, celebrate good times. Come on. Nope, not Jonah. Instead, we read here in verse one that Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Well, maybe the NIV has it wrong. Maybe it's over exaggerating Jonah's response here. Let's look at it in a few other translations. So the New Living Translation translates that verse this way. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. That says much the same thing. How about the newer version of the NIV that came out in 2011? It says it this way. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. You can look at 15 other English translations and find that they say virtually the same thing. Jonah was ticked off. He was upset. He was angry at the people of Nineveh and he's angry at God. Notice what happens in verse 2. In verse 2, Jonah prays to God, but it's nothing like his prayer that he lifted up to God inside the fish in chapter 2. I want you to notice some differences between these two prayers of Jonah in chapter 2 and chapter 4. In chapter 2, Jonah prayed his best prayer in the worst place. He was inside a whale's gut. Here in chapter 4, Jonah prays his worst prayer in the best place. The place where God's mercy and grace were on full display. Isn't that crazy? Praise his best prayer in the worst place. Praises his worst prayer in the best place. Doesn't make sense. Unlike in chapter two, Jonah is not humbly running to God. Instead, he is defiantly running against God. It's a very angry prayer prayed by a man who's being eaten alive by hatred and bitterness and resentment. Jonah prays, oh, Lord, is is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a God who's gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You're a God who relents from sending calamity. And so Jonah is ticked off. He's speaking the truth about God, but you can imagine his tone of voice was anything but respectful as he's speaking that truth. You see, Jonah understood well what most Jews in his day understood. You see, that was taken from Exodus chapter 33, verses six through seven, a stretch of scripture that every Jew in Jonah's day knew really well. So there were certain passages just like for us as Christians. We all know John 3:16, and most of us remember Romans 8:28 about God working all things together for good. There's these, these certain verses that we know as Christians, even if we don't read the Bible nearly as much as we should. Same thing went for the Jews. And so virtually every Jew knew this passage in Exodus 33. I'll set the context for you. In Exodus 33, Moses is walking up on Mount Sinai for the second time. Why did he have to go up a second time? Because he got ticked off when he came down the mountain the first time. Remember, he broke those Ten Commandment tablets into a million pieces. And so he had to go back up on the mountain the second time with two new tablets, and God was going to give him the Ten Commandments once again. Well, that's what happens in Exodus 33. Moses goes back up on Mount Sinai. God comes down in the form of a cloud and begins speaking to Moses. And this is what God says to Moses in Exodus 33, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Before he moves on to giving him the Ten Commandments, he identifies himself. He he actually, if you read on to the next verse, ends up identifying 13 characteristics of himself. He reveals that to Moses, who in turn reveals it to the people of Israel, who in turn revealed it to their children and grandchildren. So, Jonah knew this about God, and he virtually quotes part of God's revelation from Exodus 33 as he's bitterly praying to God here in Jonah chapter 4. He understands God's attributes. He understands God's character. And so he spews that back in anger at God in the midst of this crazy prayer here in chapter 4. Jonah knew this scripture from the book of Exodus. And then notice what he does in verse 3. In verse 3, he ends his prayer by saying, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I think it's pretty remarkable. There are only 11 verses in this fourth chapter of Jonah. Only 11 verses. But in those 11 verses, three different times, Jonah makes it clear, I want to die. Three different times he wants to die. Basically saying, God, I'm sick of this. I'm done. I don't want to keep living. I have no purpose here. I'd be better off dead. So take me. Let me die. Sadly, some of us have prayed those same three words. Let me die. It may not have been for the same reason that Jonah prayed these words. But some of us have prayed those words just the same. So what's the deal? Why was Jonah so ticked off? Why was he so upset about the people of Nineveh repenting? Why was he so angry at God? So angry that God changed his plans to to wipe out the people of Nineveh. Why was he so angry about that? Well, the quick answer is because Jonah was a hate-filled racist. That's the quick answer. But really, it it goes much deeper than that. It's not just that he was a hate-filled racist. That's too simple of an answer. In our study of Jonah chapter one, remember I shared with you the very first time that Jonah is mentioned in the Bible is back in second Kings chapter 14 verse twenty five Here's what that verse says to remind you, because we did look at it a few weeks ago. It says, "King Jeroboam the second." was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lemo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Now, it's not important for you to know the exact location of Lemo Hamath or the Sea of the Arabah. That's not terribly important. This is what is important. Jonah had given this prophecy years earlier, saying... One day soon the borders of northern Israel are gonna expand so far, the borders are actually going to encompass the capital city of our number one enemy, the nation of Aram. That's modern day Syria. And so when Jonah prophesied this years earlier, probably most people in Israel thought he was smoking crack. You know, that's crazy. We're not gonna envelop the territory of our number one enemy, it can't happen. That's a pipe dream. But guess what happens? exactly what Jonah had prophesied. God set the situation in place and orchestrated the details so that Israel's border expanded and it actually encompassed the capital city of the nation of Aram. So God did this, how was Jonah's prophecy 100% true? Well, that's what we always expect If the prophecy is from God, because God's prophecies are 100 percent accurate, 100 percent of the time. So any prophet speaking the actual word of the Lord will also be accurate 100 percent of the time. So this happened with Jonah. So you might imagine on the heels of that prophecy coming to pass, Jonah was a bit of a hero back in Israel. He's a bit of a hero. Jonah was. Uh, the one that had prophesied the expansion of the borders. they ha- It happened exactly as he had prophesied. Meanwhile, Amos and Hosea were prophesying that Assyria was going to wipe out northern Israel someday soon. And so Jonah gets to share kind of the optimistic prophecies and be the hero. And then you've got Amos and Hosea, kind of the bummer prophets, prophesying, well, that's true. we got to expand our land. But a little bit later down the road, guess what's going to happen? Assyria is going to wipe us out. And so, Jonah likes being the hero prophet. He likes to be the guy delivering the good news and getting the attaboys and pats on the back. And so he was also an Israeli nationalist. So because of these prophecies saying that Assyria is going to one day conquer Israel, most people in Israel hated the Assyrians and they hated the Ninevites because Nineveh was a capital, not the capital city, but a, a major city in Assyria. And so because Jonah was an Israeli nationalist, he hated them too. He had this deep pride in his country and this deep hatred for anyone who was an enemy of Israel. He hated the people of Nineveh because he hated the people of Assyria. So what's going through Jonah's mind as he's yelling at God in prayer here in the early verses of chapter 4? I think this is what's going through his mind. He's thinking something like this. Lord, you've been duped. You've been hoodwinked. You've been bamboozled. How could you be so gullible? These Assyrians aren't sorry for their perversion. They're not sorry for their violence. They're not really going to change their ways. You can't change a leopard's spots. They're pulling the wool over your eyes. They're just telling you what you want to hear to save their own skin so that they can march down to Israel and wipe us out. They want to burn our nation to the ground. And you fell for it. Well, I think that's what was going on in Jonah's mind as he prayed. But... At a deeper level, I believe this is what was going on in Jonah's heart. I can't know anyone's heart, but reading between the lines and seeing how this unfolds, this is what I believe was going on inside his heart. He cared more about his own comfort and reputation than he cared about others' salvation. Would you agree with that? He cared more about his comfort and his reputation than he cared about others' salvation. Warren Wiersbe makes this interesting observation. He writes, Jonah's Jewish friends would want to see all of the Assyrians destroyed, not just the people of Nineveh. When Jonah's friends found out that he had been the means of saving Nineveh from God's wrath, they could have considered him a traitor to official Jewish foreign policy. Uh, Jonah was a narrow-minded patriot who saw Assyria only as a dangerous enemy to destroy, not as a company of repentant sinners to be brought to the Lord. He makes some good points there, doesn't he? So would Jonah have preferred that the Assyrians not repent? Yeah. Would he have preferred for them to die a horrible death rather than be spared by God? Yes. Would he have preferred for them to burn in hell for all eternity than go to heaven? No doubt about it. At least at that moment, Jonah despised the compassion of God and his reputation among his friends back home meant more to him than his reputation with God. Warren Wiersbe goes on to say this, when reputation is more important than character and pleasing ourselves and our friends is more important than pleasing God, then we're in danger of becoming like Jonah and living to defend our prejudices instead of fulfilling our spiritual Responsibilities, So true, isn't it? So true. After Jonah's rant in verses two and three, God asks him a simple question in verse four. Jonah, have you any right to be angry? Notice that God doesn't yell back at Jonah. God doesn't strike him dead. Many people think that if they walk into church after doing something stupid. God's going to strike him dead with lightning or the roof of the church will fall in, cave in on top of him. That's not the way God works. God doesn't strike Jonah dead. The gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger and abounding in love shows Jonah an amazing amount of patience and grace right here in chapter four. In verse five, Jonah walks outside the city, he builds himself a little shelter and waits to see if God will come to his senses and send down fire from heaven to wipe out the city of Nineveh. But the fire never falls. We've seen throughout the book of Jonah that God is Yahweh Yireh, usually pronounced as Jehovah Jireh. God is our provider. God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah in chapter one. God provided grace and salvation for Jonah in chapter two and mercy for the people of Nineveh in chapter three. And if you look again here at chapter four, verses six through eight, there are three different things in three different verses that God provides. Beginning in verse 6, God provides a vine. In verse 7, he provides a worm. And in verse 8, he provides a scorching east wind. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider. Now, we're not told what type of vine God provided uh, to give Jonah some extra shade there in verse 8. Excuse me, in verse 6, we're not told what kind of vine, what kind of plant. But many Bible scholars have suggested that it was a castor oil. Plant. That's what a castor oil plant looks like. I look at this picture. It reminds me of the elephant ear plants that my mom and dad used to have in their front yard when I was a kid and it had nice big leaves and provided lots of shade. And so many think it was a castor oil plant. We don't know for sure. We're just told it was some sort of vine or plant. But it was something that grew up quickly and and really helped Jonah's shelter provide even more shelter for the scorching Middle East wind and and uh, sunshine during the daytime. Jonah really likes the extra shade. In fact, if you look at that verse there, it's the only time in the entire chapter that Jonah is happy. (laughs) He's really happy about the shade God provides. As a side note, notice how his happiness is shallow when his circumstances are good and he's got a little bit of shade. He's happy the next day. As soon as the shade is gone, what happens? He's unhappy. And that's the way happiness works. So many Christians say, all I want for you, my son or daughter, is to grow up and be happy. Please don't tell your kids that. That's terrible advice. Our goal is not for our kids to be happy. Our goal is for our kids to honor and glorify God. And here's what happens. Happiness is always transitory. It always is up and down and all around happiness is based on our happenings. If our happenings are good, we'll tend to be happy. If our happenings are bad, we'll tend to be unhappy. And so that's not what we want for our kids. We don't want them to pursue happiness. We want them to pursue the will of God. And as God is pursued by our kids and grandkids, he will tend to bring in happiness as a byproduct of them bringing glory to him. And so here Jonah is happy one day, unhappy the next In verse 7, God provides a worm to eat the shade. And in verse 8, God provides a scorching east wind to make Jonah's pity party even more miserable. And how does Jonah respond? He's like a broken record here in this chapter. Once again, he lashes out at God in anger. He says in verse 8, it would be better for me to die than to live. And God responds by asking him basically the same question he had asked back in verse 4. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Do you have a right? To which Jonah responds, and man, he's got some audacity here. Yes, I do. I'm so angry I should die. Wow, that's that's pretty angry. It's pretty angry. And as he always does, both in heaven and on earth, God has the last word. <laughs> Amen? God has the last word. Look at verses 10 and 11. But the Lord said, Jonah... You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? I hope God doesn't mind if I paraphrase his message to Jonah just, just a bit. I believe God is basically saying to Jonah, Jonah, do you have any self-awareness? Do you have any self-awareness? Do you not see how messed up your priorities are? You care more about one plant than you do about 120,000 human souls. You're yelling at me and telling me that my priorities are screwed up. Jonah, you need to look in the mirror and take the plank out of your own eye. I will always value people more than your ego. I will always value people more than your reputation, and I will always value people more than your precious plant. Wake up, Jonah, and get your priorities straight. God said that, but in a much more kind and gracious way than I just did. As I was doing my studies over the past couple of weeks, I came across the quote from Bible commentator Michael Griffiths that participates in the New International Bible Commentary and I have read and reread these words so many times over the last couple weeks. I think they're so powerful. I want to share them with you. He writes, if Jonah receives the call, if he is truly saved, it is for others. We must be permeated by the conviction that if grace is being conferred on us, it is primarily for others. The Christian is not just the man who is saved by Christ. He is the man whom God uses for the salvation of others by Christ. I'm going to read that again. If Jonah receives the call, if he is truly saved, it is for others. We must be permeated by the conviction that if grace is being conferred on us, it is primarily for others. The Christian is not just the man who is saved by Christ. He is the man whom God uses for the salvation of others by Christ. I want you to let that truth sink deeply into your minds and your hearts today. If Jonah was saved his salvation was for others. If Jonah was given grace by God, that grace was given to him for others. And the same holds true for you. Here's such an important insight that we can pull from chapter 4. Jesus Christ has given salvation and grace to you so that He could give salvation and grace through you. So never hoard them. Every gift you've received from God has been given to you to be shared with others. Do you believe that? It's true. Jonah didn't get it. And more times than not, we don't get it either. We're more like Jonah than we like to admit. We're more than happy to receive Christ's salvation, but we want to keep it for ourselves, especially when we're around people we can't stand. We gladly accept Christ's compassion and grace when we've screwed up, but we don't extend his compassion and grace to others when they screw up. I want you to really take this insight to heart this week. Every blessing from God to you is a gift to pass on to others. Every gift that he's given you, without exception, every blessing from God in your life was given to you to be shared Your salvation is supposed to be shared. Your spiritual gifts and your talents and your abilities and your skills are supposed to be shared. Your time is supposed to be shared. Your house and your car and your food are supposed to be shared. Well, what about my clothes, Pastor? Am I supposed to share my clothes? Absolutely. Uh, Even my underwear? Well, no, there are a few exceptions to this rule, and that's one of them. Don't share those. But pretty much everything else. Absolutely. Share it. What about my money? Yes. Share it. What about my problems? Yes. Share even your problems. Doesn't God's word tell us to carry one another's burdens? Absolutely. It does. We even share our problems with others. Every good and perfect gift that has ever come across your path is from God and has been given by God to you to share. It's been given to you to share. So let's not be like Jonah, selfish and stingy and judgmental. Remember, Jesus has said to his followers, freely you have received. So freely give. Lord Jesus, help us to do just that. Jonah marched into Nineveh as a man who had been saved by the grace of God. He is a man who had experienced your prophetic word and seen it come to pass. Lord, he is a man that was given grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. And he walked into that town and he didn't want to share any of it. He wanted to keep it for himself. I pray that we are not like Jonah running against you. Lord, sometimes you work through us in spite of ourselves. I pray, O oh God, that you would work through us with us as willing, enthusiastic partners in the work of God here on earth. Lord Jesus, I pray that your grace would go through me to those around me. I pray that your mercy and your love and your forgiveness and your truth and your peace and your hope and your comfort and your conviction would come to others through me. Lord Jesus, may I not be a cul-de-sac for your grace and mercy. May I be an expressway. Anything you give to me, may I freely share. Whether it's a material possession or whether it's those things that are priceless, may we freely pass those on. To those around us, freely we have received, help us to freely give in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well, you might expect that at this point, this series through Jonah would come to an end, but it's not over yet. There's so much that I want to share with you from this great book that I just couldn't fit into these four messages. So we're going to be in Jonah at least one more week. I want to give you a little hint of what I want to share with you next week. One of the things I want to touch on is this aspect of saving face. Jonah, when he obeyed the word of the Lord and God did what he did in forgiving Nineveh, saw that as an act of not being able to save face with his own countrymen back home and his own friends and family back home. And so Jonah is lifted up as a bit of a antithesis of Jesus Christ. Who was completely shamed for you and me. What a difference between Jonah who was concerned with his own reputation. And Jesus who was much more concerned with your salvation than his own reputation. We're going to delve into that a little bit more next week. Along with some other principles that we can pull from these four chapters. This is such a rich book. A powerful story here in Jonah. But a rich book that we can pull many principles from. So I hope you don't miss Next week, may God bless you as you walk in obedience to Christ's commands. As you love as you love him, as you trust him, as you serve him and you allow him to work through you. And as always, we never want this service to end without giving you an opportunity to accept Christ. If you're ready to admit that you are a sinner, believe in Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord and choose to accept him today and put him in the driver's seat of your life. Please reach out to one of our prayer and decision counselors right now. Their names and numbers are at the bottom of the screen. You can call or text anytime. Reach out to one of them. We'd love to share with you how you can get right with God today. If you're just going through some stuff and you need prayer, you reach out to one of us as as well. We would love to pray with you today. God bless you as you allow Jesus Christ and His Spirit to work through you this week for the good of others. God bless.